Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is groundbreaking singer-songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist Todd Rundgren. Hailing from Philadelphia, Todd started his career as guitarist with the Naz before fronting the band Runt and eventually pursuing a solo career. His first official solo album, Something Anything, released in 1972, stayed on the Billboard 200 for almost a year and contained some of Todd's biggest hits, including I Saw the Light and Hello, It's Me. Todd became one of the most prolific artists of the 70s and 80s, releasing numerous solo albums as well as critically acclaimed work with his band Utopia. Known as a pioneer of music video, computer software, and internet music delivery, Todd created the first interactive album, organized the first interactive television concert, and founded his own music subscription service. As a songwriter-producer, he's been behind legendary releases from Badfinger, The Band, Grand Funk Railroad, The New York Dolls, and XTC, as well as one of the biggest-selling albums of all time, Meatloaf's all-time classic, Bat Out of Hell. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Rock and Roll High School. I am absolutely thrilled to be able to introduce tonight's guest, somebody that we have been trying to get on our show for a long time. And thanks to our friend Lisa at Warner Music, and thanks to Eric Gardner, Todd's manager of 40-plus years. I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled, to introduce our guest tonight, originally from Philadelphia. His fellow Philadelphian Questlove, our friend from The Roots, has described Todd Rundgren as the endless flow of creation in human form. Patty Smith has described Todd as a pocket full of constellations, and he's been called a rock and roll maverick. We have so much to talk about, so I am absolutely thrilled to introduce to you the legendary Todd Rundgren. Hi, Todd. Shaka, everybody. Todd is coming to us live from Kauai, Hawaii. So we have a lot to talk about because I was just telling you before we went live that normally I do homework on the people that I am talking to. And I felt like I had to do more homework on you than anyone else I've ever (laughs) interviewed because in your 50 plus years of being a professional musician, you've accomplished so many things, and I'm going to try to get to as many of them in the next 90 minutes as we can. So let's start at the beginning. You were born right outside of Philly? Uh, I was born in Philly, but grew up outside of Philly. I think for the first year or so of my life, my parents lived somewhere in Philadelphia proper, and then bought a uh, row house in a brand new housing development in Upper Darby, which is the next township west of Philadelphia. I think my dad paid all of $11,000 for it. You described yourself growing up as a troubled loner. 
and not an ideal student. You kept trying to grow your hair long. Your dad wouldn't let you. Your school wouldn't let you. What was your childhood like? My mother, my dad, and occasionally would express their frustration, I guess, in terms that were uh, not, well, that I didn't take flatteringly. You put it this way. They used to accuse me of being an alien. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, that my mother, you know, had actually been impregnated by an alien or something like that. That was, the, there was that level of understanding between us. Um, <laughs> and you agreed with them, that assessment? Well, you know, it was hard to refute. I didn't get along in almost any of the normal social situations. I was terrible at school. I would usually be disruptive at most anything that involved other people because my attention span was so gnat-like. So I, you know, I would try to focus, you know, I'd try to pay attention, but I just could not make my mind do it. I was just terrible in school, terrible at most of those organizational things. The thing that I did best was when I became a Boy Scout. And I, that was when I was probably about 15, 14 or 15. So I was a bit older than a lot of the other kids. So they immediately made me like a leader of one of the, I've forgotten what they call them now, uh, patrol. I was a patrol leader. I did fairly well at it. You know, I was given a lot of freedom in terms of, you know, defining my so-called leadership of the Beaver Patrol. That <laughs> was really the patrol that they assigned me. And we did well at camperies and things like that. You know, I would plan ahead like a lot of the other patrol leaders wouldn't do. And then I had a falling out with the scoutmaster one day, and that was the total end of that. And then I went back <laughs> to being a trouble loner. So, when did you uh, when did you discover music for the first time? Uh, that's you know it wasn't like a discovery. It was always there. It was from the time I had the small motor skills to stack singles on my little RCA forty five player. I was listening to and fascinated by music. It was the single activity in which I would sit in one place and not get all antsy and not aggravate everybody around me, uh, not act out. I could listen to music for hours and hours. So it became pretty apparent very early on that I had a musical mind. And uh, so, from then on, it was never not a part of my life in one form or another. If I was listening to music, I was trying to learn how to play an instrument. Or by the time I got to junior high school, my favorite class in all of, of my school years was chorus. If you belong to the chorus, then you had a chorus, regular chorus class during the week, one or two of them. And so I learned the fundamentals of singing, even though I wasn't a very good singer. And I only had, by the time I got to and the high school, I only had two options. One was to try and get into a technical school and learn how to program computers, because that was my other interest, or get in a band. And fortunately, I got in a band and well, never had to do an honest day's work after that. So I, I remember hearing a story about your sister bringing home a flute and you tried playing her flute. What was that like? No, the other way around. I thought I wanted to play the flute. I liked the sound of the flute. 
But once I got the fluid, I realized how difficult it was, especially for somebody who was like, I think I was only maybe eight or 10 at the time. It was elementary school. And the wind instruments are a lot harder to play than they look. They have sort of nonlinear fingering and especially the flute, which you hold sideways, you know. And I couldn't develop, my mouth was, you know, maybe too small or whatever. I couldn't develop the embouchure to play it properly. But my sister thought she wanted to play the clarinet and she brought that home and never touched it. And so I took it out of the case and started to learn how to play it. And it was a lot easier, a bit more linear than the flute. And I learned to play Two Strangers on the Shore by Mr. Ackerbilk. Love that uh, record. <laughs> and that, that was one of the few moments of pride that my dad ever expressed in me, <laughs> at least while I was still living at home. I think he got a little more prideful when I left home and I never came back looking for money. I realized, oh, okay, he's not a complete failure. Um, you formed your first band at 17. Was that money? Probably 16 or 17, you know, because I always wanted to be in a band from more or less uh, the first time that I got a serious guitar. But ultimately, in order to have a band, I had to talk my best friend into being, <laughs> into wanting to be in a band with me. And essentially, since he was my best friend, we were already getting along, you know, and having a lot of fun playing music. And also his parents really doted on him. And so he provided most of the equipment that we had. He took apart uh, the family's 18 speaker stereo console and put it in a big rolling box with a mixer in the back and everything went in there. The guitars, um, the microphones, Everything but the drums went through this one thing that was essentially an 18-speaker stereo system that we'd roll into a fraternity house or something like that. And that lasted until, you know, pretty much graduation when my friend had to get serious and he went off to college. And I left home on my 18th birthday, registered for the draft, and then went to Ocean City, New Jersey to meet up with a drummer that I had met and we had planned to put a band together. So fortunately, when I got out of high school, I didn't wind up, you know, truly homeless. People took me in and there was a whole hippie scene going on in those days in Philadelphia. And uh, once I joined Woody's Truck Stop, me and my friend both did because they were missing a drummer. And my the addition of my guitar made the lineup exactly like the Paul Butterfield band. And so... We were playing white blues in Philadelphia in 1966. And then how, how long after that did you form the NAS? It was like the next spring. I lasted maybe eight months in Woody's truck stop. And then the whole San Francisco scene happened. And the band got into the Grateful Dead and decided that they wanted to you know live on a commune and take acid all the time. And I was not into that. And so we parted ways. And at that point, I thought, okay, what do I do now? I got a pretty good reputation from being in the uh, in Center City, Philadelphia's premier blues band. <laughs> and so I just started stealing players from other, other groups and put the NAS together, kind of like a, a Philadelphia super group. Is it true that the NAS's first gig was opening for The Doors? Uh, one of our early gigs, our first gigs were just, you know, whatever you could get. 
I think we probably did get a gig or two at the Artist's Hut, which is where Woody's Truck Stop broke out of. <laughs> and one of our gigs was opening for the Doors at Town Hall. What do you remember uh, about that? Did you think, uh, did you stay around and watch the headliner? Uh, we did watch it. You know, I was kind of, I liked some of the music, and then some of it seemed like dolorous and, you know, weird and overly dramatic to me. Like when they would do Universal Soldier and, and Jim Morrison would fall down dead on the stage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought, okay, that's commitment of a certain kind. <laughs> or if you're taking a nap, I don't know. <laughs> but... Uh, Years later, I was playing with Ringo, and uh, Burton Cummings tried to pull the same stunt. <laughs> he he tried to pull, a, he he tried to pull a Universal Soldier during American Woman. Very nice. The um, yeah, another story. We won't get. We probably won't get that far. <laughs> so the Nas made two albums. They were signed to um, Screen Gems Columbia, which was a subsidiary of Atlantic, right? In '68. Actually. Uh, when we got signed, and I believe it was Atlantic made the commitment, but it was more complicated than that. Uh, the thing about the NAS, the funny thing about the NAS is that we became famous before we ever made a record because our manager, who was a publicist, had a relationship with Gloria Stavers, the editor of 16 Magazine. And we wound up on the cover of all these teeny bopper magazines before we ever got signed. So when we did get signed, I think there was a lot of thought in the music industry that we were some kind of latter-day monkeys, you know, that we <laughs> were put together specifically for the purposes of being a teeny bopper band. And that was not what we were at all. We were, you know, we dressed up like that, but we dressed like that because the Who dressed like that. And we thought of ourselves as a combination of like the Who and the Beach Boys, you know, a little bit of Beatles thrown in there or something like that. But we were definitely not a teeny bopper band. Eventually, when we did get signed, there were several entities involved. As you mentioned, there was Screen Gems and there was Columbia. And I don't exactly remember what the role was, but that would have been Columbia Records at the time. And then there was Atlantic, who did the actual distribution of SGC Records, which was a label they created for us. Got and it. why did they create that label for us? Because we refused to be on Coal Gems, the monkey's label. <laughs> you get it? Columbia Screen Gems, Coal Gems? Yep. Screen Gems, Columbia, SGC. <laughs> so, there you go. I, I remember looking at one of the Nas album covers. It looks a lot like a Beatles album cover. Well, we didn't have a lot of graphic sense at the beginning, and our manager found a photographer, and the photographer had this idea of doing it something like uh, something like the Beatles' first cover, not literally, the first American cover, but not literally the same thing. But what he wanted to do was make it black and white on one side and color on the other side. And so it came out looking more like the Beatles' cover, I think, even than the photographer intended. <laughs> Because of the fact that there was a sort of, you know, a line down everybody's face where the color changed from, you know, black <laughs> and white to color. So it wasn't purposeful on our part, but we thought if people equate us with the Beatles, hey, you know, we'll You'll take, take it. it. Yeah. And th that was the beginning of a longstanding intersection between you and the Beatles. It's amazing how much your lives intersected, you know, with George, with John with Ringo, obviously, to present day, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. The 
the interesting thing about the NAS, you weren't the primary vocalist in the NAS, were you? No, I didn't consider myself a, a singer or a front singer at that point. I was comfortable singing the backgrounds, but I wasn't, uh, I didn't have the confidence as a performer, you know, to really, except for the occasional guitar solos and the windmilling and all that other stuff and the leaping about, I wasn't confident having the entire focus on me. You know, my antics were essentially, as I said, part of the whole of our attempt to come off like the Who. Uh, when I first saw the Who, they were like no other performance group that I had ever seen in that you didn't know who to look at. Somebody was doing something. I mean, like I say, Pete's jumping around windmilling and he's all dressed up in, in like French court <laughs> garb and things like that and going nuts and... Uh, Rogers swinging the microphone around. It's going 20, 30 feet over the heads of the audience. And yet he doesn't kill anybody or himself. <laughs> uh, Keith Moon, of course, looks like some, you know, octopus on acid. And even John Entwistle, who kind of stood there like a tree or something like that. The quiet one. For like a mile a minute. Yep. Going all a little like this. If they, how can anybody play that many notes? <laughs> So like all the movement that was going on in the music was like it, it was like the bass part because Pete was principally just doing power chords and things yeah. like that, not playing lots of melodies and that sort of thing. So the first time I saw him, I said, that's that's the contemporary definition of what performance should be. And so we modeled that a lot in the NAS. So you ended up leaving the NAS because you felt that musically your inspiration was was more broad than where the rest of the band was. And after that, is that when you connected with Bearsville and Albert Grossman? Yeah, the the band started to disintegrate after the second record for any number of reasons. One was that we were all pretty young and immature and we and probably none of us was prepared for the stresses that go along with being on the cover of 16 magazine and and yet not having the the kind of musical success that we wanted people weren't paying that much attention to the music we were getting at each other's throats in a certain way and then our manager started to play us off against each other trying to get us to do i don't know what and then i i just decided this is going nowhere i have to stop so i was still signed as a songwriter to screen gems so I moved into an apartment they had on the Upper East Side. Uh, they had places in a lot of major cities. Like when we went to record our first NAS album, we were staying in some Screen Gems apartments in what was the Mondrian at the time, kind of across the street from the Riot House. And so since I was signed to them, I guess they had these places to put up writers when they were working on projects or... Maybe writers are always finding themselves on the street. <laughs> and so I was staying there all alone. 
trying to figure out what to do. And I was just taking odd jobs, designing lights for a club. I was spending a lot of time with clothiers in the West Village, which ultimately informed my fashion sense and also connected me to the British fashion industry so that I eventually, people started to assume that I was British because I always dressed like I was British. I would never buy American clothes. I would go to London for two weeks, shop at all the warehouses and stores. Granny takes a trip, had my patterns, and would make stuff on spec because my body shape and height was almost exactly the same as Rod Stewart. So if I didn't buy it, Rod Stewart would buy it. <laughs> so, uh, And then I got approached by the uh, essentially the partner of the manager of the NAS who had moved on and eventually went to work for Albert Grossman. And he had watched me sort of evolve as a producer through the second NAS album because we had a real producer for the first one, but he was old school, old school. He sat there and read the trades and <laughs> watched the clock and, you know, made hardly any contribution, you know, to the, to the actual form of the record. And not only that, after he mixed the record, we didn't like the sound of it. So I wound up remixing it. And then I wound up taking production, taking over the production of the second NAS album. So he had observed all this. And the Grossman organization was uh, graying in terms of their lineup of the people that they had, because it was built mostly in the folk era, which was the early 60s. And it was now the late 60s, early 70s. And a lot of the acts were still kind of stuck in the early 60s. So they were looking for somebody young who had new ideas, who would help to bring a lot of these legacy artists up to date. And so I wound up, you know, producing Ian and Sylvia and James Cotton, almost, you know, most of the acts, you know, Jesse Winchester, who was a Southern country artist that, uh, that Albert discovered. And then eventually I got my, essentially my big break as a producer, which was stage fright for the band. Even though there's no producer credit because everybody in the band is a producer when they make their records, but it was recognized that I had, you know, contributed to the sound and the production. They gave this bubble his fortune and fame. Since that day, he ain't been the same. See the man with the stage fright, just standing up there to give it all his might. And he got caught in the spotlight. When we get to the end, you want to start all over again. After that, I suddenly had a career as a producer. People might not realize you were super young. When you made this band record, you were in your super early 20s. 20, 21, something like that, yeah. And, and this band record, I mean, that's the shape I'm in. That's stage fright. You know, these are songs that 50 years later are as relevant and timely as, as anything. So I, I read that when you made the record, um, you didn't love the work ethic. You, you felt like their work ethic didn't equal your own. And what was that like at, at 21 years old? Well, as I had uh, previously mentioned, my attention span is measured in nanoseconds. <laughs> and so it seemed awfully hard for them to get all together, you know, to actually play. And, what am I doing? I'm sitting in the prop tent uh, behind the Woodstock Playhouse. 
sweltering the daytime and freezing at night, and nothing's happening. Occasionally, we had to go to do me four takes, and then things we kind of disintegrated. It was like their their collective attention span was worse than mine, <laughs> in the sense that they could not get them all on the you know get everybody on the same page long enough, you know, to uh, uh, to get a couple of takes down. And there were internal dynamics going on in there that essentially affected that, that I wasn't aware of coming in to the project. I wasn't aware that anybody in the band had any drug problems. I wasn't aware that Garth was narcoleptic. And at one point, you know, I got in trouble with the band for making fun of Garth because he fell asleep in, in the middle of the session because I didn't realize that he could fall asleep in the middle of a take. Would have been uh, good to know before you came in, right? Yeah, it would have helped, I guess. So, <laughs> I would have adapted, you know, and would not have opened my young yap. That process, regardless of, of how smooth it was on your end, definitely put you on the map. And I'm not sure if it was before or after, but you were approached to produce Janis Joplin at one point. Uh, yeah, after Albert signed Janis, he realized he was going to build a whole new thing for her. Uh, it was no longer going to be the... Uh, the big brother thing would be Janis Joplin and then a band. And I got sent out to Northern California. She was living in Mill Valley at the time. And I was supposed to somehow, you know, organize or shepherd this whole process so that we would be prepared to make a record. It wasn't actually to go make a record. It was, they were still reviewing material. Uh, it was so funny. Nick Gravenides would come in with a song. John Hall would come in with a song. Everybody would come in with a song for Janice. Janice might not even be there, you know. <laughs> uh, at one point, Janice, uh, we get a telephone call, and Janice is on the phone and says, I'm going to be late. I'm at the police station <laughs> in Sausalito. And so, okay, well, whatever. I hope it's not a problem, blah, blah, blah. Five minutes later, I walk past her bedroom, and she's in the, her bedroom with some young guy and phoning from her bedroom into the other room, you know, that she's too busy to come, uh, you know, review material or anything like that. So that I had a hard time dealing with. And I came to realize after a while that she didn't like making records. She indeed only made one record after that. She preferred performing live in front of an audience. Yeah, right? performing in the studio. There was not the kind of feedback. And there was nothing to play off of. And so she really hated it. You know, she really hated the idea that she had to do multiple takes of anything, that she couldn't just like blow her whole wad on one take like she would in front of an audience. Uh, indeed, the you know, I think the first Big Brother album was mostly live, wasn't it? Right. Mm -hmm. or had significant live things in it. And she probably, after doing, you know, a couple of things in the studio, she didn't have a taste for it. So that's inability for her to kind of surrender to the process, you know, and made it harder for her to kind of judge what she was doing. I just wasn't the personality for it. I get in the studio and I want to make music. And at the time, I was still fairly unskilled at the politics and psychology that you have to be adept at as a producer sometimes. You have to keep band members from tearing each other apart and become the one that they focus all their rage on sometimes. Well, you got a lot of that later in your career, didn't you? Well, it happens. <laughs> it comes with the territory. When did you decide that you wanted to start a new band? 
And did you go to the uh, to the Bearsville crew and say, "I've got an idea for a new band"? And uh, and Runt happened. Well, actually, it wasn't that I wanted to form a band. I had done several productions uh, for the label, and I said, "Would you give me um, a budget to do a vanity record?" I don't want to restart. In fact, I hadn't had a solo career, so I didn't want to start a solo career. I just had musical ideas and I wanted to make a record, you know, and I guess just be a studio artist while I continue to produce. So they gave me the budget and I, and I made the record, brought it back and they were kind of, they found it quite interesting in its scope. And then it actually had uh, something of a hit single on it. And did you literally say to them, this is a vanity project that you didn't really expect anything from it. You just wanted to create. Oh yeah. Well, they didn't want me to suddenly stop producing for them. You know, they, you know, that was essentially a little reward for the work that I had done. It's partly because I have a funny relationship with money. I never think about it. (laughs) I have no idea how much money I have at any particular point in time. (laughs) I have always had an accountant since I've ever had any money to speak of. And so I never think about it. So I had no idea what the budget would be. I just said, give me a budget. And then essentially they just started paying for whatever I did because it was pretty low cost. And when you ended up having a hit on that record, was it as more surprising for them or for you or for both? Well, it was probably more surprising for me because they were the ones who picked the song and put it out. So they must have thought that it had some radio potential. The song we're talking about is We Gotta Get You a Woman, right? Yes, it is. And and it did have radio potential, but also a uh, story of my life. There was uh, a certain, you know, current events <laughs> working against the song at the time. In other words, not necessarily because the song is We Gotta Get You a Woman or anything like that. But there's one line in the song that gets consistently misinterpreted. The line is, they may be stupid, but they sure are fun. But people aren't grammatically astute enough to realize that they is talking about things, idiosyncrasies, you know, that someone may have. Not about women in general, you know. As a things about that special one, they may be stupid, but they sure are fun. The things is what I'm talking about. You know, the weird little, maybe she's got a goofy laugh or something like that. Yeah, it was getting big airplay in Boston and suddenly feminist groups threatened to bomb the station. <laughs> and suddenly, the, you know, suddenly the whole thing collapsed. It never achieved the kind of level that it might have because of, uh, of current events. Well, a top 20 hit nationally on a song from a vanity project isn't too bad. Not too bad, but then it backed me into a corner. I had to commit to being a performer at that point. And talk about that. Ironically, when we're able to be on the road, you're on the road as as um, often as 10 months a year. But back then, did you prefer to make music in the studio or did you enjoy playing live? I did not enjoy playing live. And, you know, when we talk about the group that I put together, it was a support group. <laughs> it was not like a regular band. You know, 
I had never fronted before. A set in those days was like 30, 40 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes if you're an opener or something like that. I couldn't get through the first 10 minutes before I blew my voice out. I had never had proper singing lessons and never realized what you needed to do in order to have the stamina, you know, to sing for a half an hour at least. And so I hired a group though where other people did singing, you know, a lot of other people did the singing as well. It was pretty eclectic, some odd combination of players that I knew and the Hello People, who essentially were a, a musical mime group. And I would have them do their little mime skits in between as well to give me extra time to rest my voice. So when I first went out, you know, I just, I would dread getting on the stage. And it took, you know, literally years for me to get to the point where I felt like I could get on the stage alone and entertain anybody. The players on the first Runt album, and Runt was the name of the band, right? In the beginning? No, people made that assumption. There was never a band during when, when I recorded the Runt album. Runt was a nickname that people used to call me when I was growing up because until I got out of high school, I was very skinny and somewhat short. I was probably about five, maybe five, eight, five, nine by the time I graduated high school, which is not short, but in the next year or two, I grew five inches after I graduated from high school. I was eventually six, two. People used to call me runt through like my entire life. I was weedy and skinny and runty. And so it was simply the title of the album. People assumed that it was a band called Runt. And the title of the album was Todd Rundgren. <laughs> was that? But I did call the group of musicians who were backing me up, which was more or less constantly changing at the time. I would refer to them as Runt as if they were a band, but it was really nothing as, as formal as that. One thing that I didn't realize, Todd, before doing a little homework is that on that first Runt album, you had Tony and Hunt Sales, uh, later from uh, Tin Machine, David Bowie's band, played on that album. And Tony was 17 and Hunt was 14? About that. Maybe they were a little older than that. I think they might. I met them when they were like 17 Kids. and 14 at Steve Paul's The Scene in New York. Yep. Jam sessions at Steve Paul's The Scene. And Hunt and Tony would show up for those sessions. Underage. Uh, underage, but there was not a problem at that point unless there was some sort of other curfew because most of the music clubs like Steve Paul's The Scene and the Cafe Agogo, which was down in the village, they didn't serve alcohol. They served milkshakes, right? They served milkshakes. They served milkshakes <laughs> and flower vases. <laughs> it would take an hour to drink it. And so they would show up for the jam sessions that would happen at Steve Paul's The Scene every night, and, and so would I, often to participate, sometimes just to watch. But that's how I met them. And they invited me up to their uh, uh, apartment building. They had a whole building at the time. Super and Sales is kids, right? Yeah, and up on the top floor, they had their own studio. There were two Marshall stacks and a giant <laughs> double bass drum set there in the middle of Manhattan, in the middle of a Manhattan, essentially, apartment. You know, I can't imagine what the neighbors went through. You know, when we started to, like, jam you know, a la cream with the Marshalls up to 11 
and hunt hammering away on the double bass drums and stuff like that. But eventually they moved to California, back to Beverly Hills. They had actually had um, a dual citizenship, I guess. <laughs> but they moved with their mom. There was, she was separated from Soupy. And they moved back to California. And when I was recording the first Runt album, I was living in their pool house. <laughs> So essentially, we would go from Soupy's house to the studio and back to Soupy's house. (laughs) One thing that we didn't talk about is the musical inspiration for the first album. There was a lot of Laura Nero-inspired music coming from your brain at that point because you had heard her music, Elina, 13th Confession, and you were really taken with it. Yeah, that was part of what broke the NAS up, the fact that I was absorbing inappropriate musical influences. (laughs) Also, I was I had developed something of a relationship with Laura herself. And at one point she asked me if I would be her band leader. She didn't have a band. And I just, you know, the NAS had just had her first album come out. And as tempting as it was, I couldn't, you know, I was scared too, frankly, to take on that kind of responsibility. I thought I could only ruin it because I was still learning stuff from her. But that kind of I think was a turning point and then I realized I had other options and that I might have to make a choice at some point. The second album, which was also called Runt, but this time The Ballad of Todd Rundgren, is considered to be the greatest, one of the greatest singer-songwriter albums of the era. So ironically, you later, after Something Anything, were compared to Carole King, but your influence was more Laura Nero than it was Carole King. Is that right? Well, my influences are multiform. I may get fixated on someone like Laura Nero for a while and absorb as much as I can, but at a certain point, you know, it'll be diminishing returns and I can't settle for that. You know, I have to start finding other things. I mean, there were prior musical influences that were still in there. Maurice Ravel, the Beatles, <laughs> you know. Backrack and David as well. Recton Wilde, Darius Mio, you know, it's like, Anything from, you know, Dadaist music to electronic music to Philly R&B to, you know, there wasn't necessarily any kind of preference for these things. It's just they grab me. I absorb what I can from them. And then usually what happens is we both move on (laughs) in a way. Laura would move on to a, a kind of more... I don't know, kind of more controlled thing. The thing that appealed to me about her was that everything she did amounted to an emotional statement. The the lyrics that were in the song and the melodies of the song and the way that she sang it and the way that and even the way that they were arranged. That was one of the things that grabbed me the most about Eli and the 13th Confession was the broad spectrum of all of the arrangements and the way that they were all subservient to the message in the song. And that I sort of kept with me, and I apply it to almost anything, because it's a thing that doesn't just work in the context of Laura Nero. It can work for anything, you know. You, first of all, inform my production philosophy, which is the thing the audience wants most of all is a good song. They'll put up with a half-assed performance of a good song, but they won't put up with a perfect performance of a terrible song. (laughs) So so the first thing you do is, you know, you get your 
you get your material together, you know, and then the next thing you do is figure out how is this supposed to be presented? You know, how do you sing this? How do you arrange it? How do you serve the song the best, you know? And then, of course, there's the actual performance itself. And then the thing that the audiences care least about actually is sound quality, especially nowadays when people are listening on Beats phones, you know, with the bass all distorted, you know, or earbuds that don't fit properly, stuff like that. The whole idea of having, you know, consistent sound quality has gone totally out the window. And they're listening mainly to compressed MP3s, too. So you have a compressed sound file through a shitty headphone. Yeah, but that also proves my theory, you know, is that people care most about the song. The reason why they care about it is because for some reason when it's over, some part of it sticks with them. Yep. And they want to hear it again or they want to sing along with it or something like that, you know. And then, you know, the performance has essentially made that song something memorable. Well, let's talk about songwriting for a second. So you followed up the Ballad of Todd Rundgren album with Something Anything, which is considered one of the greatest albums of all time, consistently charting in Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time as recently as the updated list that came out last month. But what's interesting about Something Anything is it's the first time that you did a bunch of things. It was the first time you experimented with psychedelics and Ritalin. It was the first time that you recorded every part by yourself. It was a double album. What do you remember about Something Anything and the creation of Something Anything? Well, you know, now that you mentioned the the drugs, (laughs) my evolution was kind of, you know, when I did Runt, I was still pretty much a teetotaler. I had never even gotten drunk. As a matter of fact, Hunt and Tony's mom couldn't believe that I had never gotten drunk and got me drunk one night, (laughs) (laughs) which was probably illegal. I was probably only 20 at the time. But, you know, it wasn't like I went out and got drunk again after that. It was like, that was interesting. But between the first album, between Runt and the Ballad of Todd Rundgren, I started smoking cannabis. And I don't know what it does for other people, but for me, it completely organized everything. I could suddenly see things that I couldn't see before. And that's why it became a songwriter's record. I was suddenly realizing, you know, oh, this is how these things can go together, you know, to make something that is like a song, even though it may try to exceed the boundaries of a normal song. So that's why it sounds so much more coherent than the second album, oddly enough. (laughs) I start smoking pot and everything gets more coherent. At the same By the time, time, I got to the third album, yeah. something, anything. I actually was not yet fully into psychedelics, but I, my friend that I formed a band with in high school, he was now a full-fledged psychiatrist, and he said, there's this thing called Ritalin. I think you should try it. <laughs> and so I tried Ritalin, and that just made my productivity go through the roof, and that's what turned something, anything into a double album, likely. I was writing all the time on recording. <laughs> All the time. I barely spent time to eat and get laid. I was just <laughs> making so much music that it ultimately turned into an album and a half. And then I realized I didn't want to go another side that was all all me performing. I thought I want to do something that's live sounding, you know, and where we do everything live in the studio, which I hadn't really done since the Nas was doing demos, trying to get signed. 
recording had already evolved to a certain point where overdubbing was a significant part of the process. So people rarely played everything live in the studio. So I decided that the last time everything would be live in the studio. And ironically enough, that produced <laughs> the biggest single that I ever had. Rich, you're talking about Hello, It's Me, but before we, course, we yeah. get, before we get there for a second, what's interesting about Something Anything is that it has Hello, It's Me, you know, a hit, big hit song. It has I Saw the Light. hit song but it also has the intro sound of the studio so mm -hmm. which you listen to now and you don't realize back almost 50 years ago this was the first time that people were hearing something like this what made you do it i guess i was breaking the fourth wall in a way that uh i was you know i had a double reputation as a producer and an artist at this point and I thought, why don't I let people as why don't I get into my producer head and let people in on the process a little bit? And it's not actually that unusual a thing. You could say that it's some sort of weird descendant of colors. The uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. It's just skip me. Ken Nordine. Yep. Ken Nardine, where he would essentially talk his way <laughs> through a song, and each song would be about a color, and there'd be like jazz accompaniment behind it. But essentially, it's uh, it wasn't Ken, it wasn't rap so much. You know. Ken Nardine <laughs> didn't have big hit records surrounding his spoken word colors, though, on the no, same album. Well, he didn't that, but everybody knew his voice. So <laughs> there was that. And I just thought it was an incredibly interesting exercise. But I was on the way, even in the midst of something, anything, I'm transitioning toward the complete destruction of the format, which Wizard of True Star represented. And totally. that we can blame on psychedelics. <laughs> there you go. The full evolution. Getting yeah. back to something, anything for, for a second. You know, Hello, It's Me. Did I read this right? That Hello, It's Me, which was originally recorded by the NAS, was the very first song that you ever wrote in your life? Yes, it was. I was in the NAS and we were doing covers. We were just covering everybody and uh, came to realize that if we were going to get to the next level, if we were going to get signed, Beatles wrote all their own material, Stones wrote their own material, Beach Boys, all, all the big acts writing their own material. So I realized, you know, we're going to have to start writing. So I sat down and I didn't really have a, you know, a, a starting point. I didn't think oh, I have to write this kind of song or that. And it would have made more sense for me to write a rock song with a bunch of bar chords in it at first. But I was listening to a 
a cutout bin record I had of uh, Jimmy Smith, uh, the organ player, B3 player. And he was doing a, and it was a live recording, probably in a small club. And he was playing a, a song that was actually famous for him called Johnny Comes Marching Home. But he did a whole new improvised intro to it, which was a bunch of chords, descending chords. And so I got fascinated with that. And I worked them out on the guitar. And then I said, okay, these are the chords to a song now. This is not an intro any longer. These are the chords to a song. And, uh, and then I thought, okay, what do I write about? The only thing I can write about, that girl who broke my heart in high school when I came to pick her up one day and her dad turned the hose on me. Because you had long hair. hair you know? yep. <laughs> but I didn't want it to appear as if she had rejected me. I wanted it to appear as if I had done the rejecting. <laughs> so I essentially flipped the script a little bit and the lyrics and said, okay, I'm, I'm calling you up to break up with you <laughs> instead of the other way around. The Nas version was particularly dirgy. You know, it was a very slow tempo. I didn't even play guitar and I played vibes. And a different singer. And it was Stuky, the lead singer of the Nas, who sang it. And music had changed a little bit, and so I started to hear the song a different way, different kind of backing, more up-tempo. And it was part of a three-song session that we did on a Sunday afternoon at the record plant at uh, the studio that was on the 10th floor or whatever. I woke up that morning, that Sunday morning, and I called up Moogie Klingman because we uh, uh, essentially had a, uh, a relationship and we would essentially after that build Secret Sound, which is where my, the rest of my records would be made, including Was There a True Star? But uh, called him up in the morning because he was just really well connected and said, I want to do a session this afternoon. Uh, can you get a horn section, a guitar player, a B3, whatever, get you know, some singers, definitely some singers. So I... Uh, show up for the session and we've got the Brecker brothers. This is before anybody knew who the Brecker brothers were, you know, but we've got the Brecker brothers horn section, Randy and Mike and Barry. Uh, and then we had, uh, I think Rick Derringer was on one of the songs, but he had to leave. So I'm not sure he was on uh, hello. It's me. We had Rick Derringer there. We had Ralph Shuckett on the organ. Uh, we had, uh, a good number of the cast of hair singing background on it. And essentially, you know, we did it in about, you know, it was probably the third take. Ran through it a couple times, recorded a couple takes, and then that was it. We moved on to another song, which was either You Left Me Sore or Dust in the Wind. With Hello, It's Me, you know, as the first song that you ever wrote, when you hear... You know, 50 years later, the Isley Brothers, Erica Badu and Andre 3000, John Legend, so many people covering that song. Do you like hearing other people's interpretations of songs you wrote? Uh, mostly I do. 
I think early on, I thought, okay, cover versions have to sound like the originals or else they're not worth considering. I got so much amusement out of that uh, Isley Brothers version <laughs> with all the hello, 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 but the thing that the thing that I like the most about it is when someone else's version takes on its own life. And to some people, or to at least to a certain audience, that's the original version. Right. Yeah. And I met a lot of black people who say, Yeah, hello, it's me. I heard you wrote that. <laughs> said, yeah, and I recorded it too. <laughs> Same thing with um I can't believe that. Wait. You did a you did the Isley Brothers, hello, it's me. <laughs> there you go. The yeah, same, before the Isleys. Same thing years later with England Dan and John Ford Coley doing, you know, a cover of Utopia's Love is the Answer. Well, yeah. And having a funny. massive yacht rock hit with it. Utopia couldn't get arrested, <laughs> but other people would see the uh, potential in the material, I guess. Utopia was never a band that, you know, we never, at least as a band, studied what made a record a hit. Those are great records, though. The evolution of the band was essentially started out as a prog rock, full on prog rock group with six or seven people in it. Our shows would be four hours long because everybody had to play at least a five-minute solo on every song. This is what you're looking at now. It's a stripped-down version of Utopia that we eventually evolved into. It's more power pop than it is prog rock, right? Yeah, it became more power pop. We started writing things that were more songs, winnowing out all the long instrumental stuff for the most part. And hoping that, you know, we would somehow break through to AM radio, which we really didn't. But we became something of a mainstay on FM radio, which at the time was considered album radio. Yeah. And so we were able to go out and tour arenas yeah. and things like that and have expensive sets with smoke machines and flamethrowers and that sort of thing. Before yeah. we move on, we have so much to get to and not a ton of time. I, I want to talk about A Wizard, A True Star for a moment, um, even though we're jumping around chronologically. The great writer Barney Hoskins has referred to A Wizard, A True Star as the greatest album of all time that still sounds more bravely futuristic than any cutting-edge electro being made in the 21st century. And so... Ironically, coming off of two massive hit songs from the Something Anything album, we didn't talk about I Saw the Light, which you wrote in 20 minutes. But with A Wizard of True Store, it was almost like you're saying, you know what? I don't even want to release any singles off this album. I want people to listen to this as a body of work. And I don't care if it has hits on it. Well, yeah, the drugs were kicking in. <laughs> and uh, I just started to think of the whole form factor differently. Yes, it was still a time when you could expect people, you know, to sit down and and focus on a whole album, you know, listen to a whole album, both sides. 
we didn't have this, the uh, Walkman yet. So if you wanted a quality music experience, you had to do it in your own house, sitting in your own sweet spot between the speakers. And I started to think, well, first of all, there's you know 20 to 30 minutes of potential audio on a side of this vinyl disc. Why are we always breaking them up into three, three and a half minute pieces? Because the album, quote album, is what an album is. It's a collection of things, you know, and albums traditionally had been collections of singles. When you got enough singles, you got an album. Nobody went in and recorded an album and started pulling singles off of them, except maybe Frank Sinatra, you know, who would just go in in an afternoon and record a whole record. Aside from that, you know, thinking that, okay, a song doesn't have to be three and a half minutes long. I started thinking, it doesn't have to be a song. It can be any kind of sound. You know, this is, it captures sound, and people just assume it's music. So why don't I just, like, open up the whole, you know, open the window here and start putting sound on there. Stop thinking so much about music, traditional musical forms, and think more about sound and what you can do with sound. And so from the very first notes of, or the very first sounds of Wizard of True Star, you realize something different is going on because it doesn't start with a bump, ba dum boom, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It you know, doesn't start with anything that sounds like music, which is supposed to like prime you. <laughs> you know, don't go assuming that you're going to hear a whole lot of songs, three-minute songs, just like you do every other record. You know, you're going to have to think differently and then the process from my standpoint was just simply don't take things to the end. You know, the usual thing is, okay, I got a half a song, but a song has to be three and a half minutes long. So I'm going to have to write a bridge, even though I think that this completely completes the idea, but I have to make it longer for some reason. So I said, okay, once you've essentially established the idea, move on to something else. You know, you don't have to just artificially stretch it out so that it fits this other form factor. And so the whole record is a collection of those things. Sometimes it's something long and epic and musical. Sometimes it's something little and stupid. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, a medley of things. Sometimes it's, it's a joke of some kind, you know, it's a, an icebreaker. Uh, in the end, it's a freaking anthem, you know, <laughs> Uh, just one victory. That became the way I thought about records pretty much from then on. And if I'd made a more conventional record, that was when I was being self-conscious. I'm thinking, okay, this is a conventional record. Remind yourself, it's a conventional record, none of the funny business, just make songs. <laughs> Normally, when you're following up a big hit, you know, like, um, you know, something, anything, following up with, with uh, Hello, It's Me and Love is the Answer, and you hand in A Wizard, A True Star, normally the label would say, where are the hits? But you mentioned that Albert Grossman said, no, let's, you know, die cut vinyl and gatefolds and, and all this crazy stuff. And let's really go for this. Yeah, he, he came up with a lot of the ideas 
for stuff that I never would have dared ask for. Sticking a postcard in there as well as a little band-aid with a poem on it and uh, the whole die cut thing. And the poem and, was written uh, by Patty Smith, right? Uh, yeah, a poem by, by Patty. And that was the first time a lot of people ever heard of Patty Smith. You there know? you go. You know, he just had, the, in some ways, a perverse streak about him, you know. <laughs> Albert but, did. Yeah, let's do this and see what happens. <laughs> and so, uh, so we did it. And, of course, it was met with opprobrium almost universally, you know. Paul Fishkin, you know, who was actually tasked with trying to, you know, find singles and get radio to play it or whatever, you know, he was just. It's like, what What did you do? Know, you just. What are you doing? <laughs> what is this? How am I supposed to sell this? Meanwhile, meanwhile, Albert's chuckling in the corner. You know? <laughs> he wants to see what happens to Paul trying to sell this thing. <laughs> well, that's a good segue to moving on to some of your production work because some of your production work, um, like you said, they're really albums. And, you know, you listen to these albums even now whether it's skylarking or whether it's bad out of hell um and their albums their their statements from beginning to end um so i would love to talk about some of the productions that you did for other artists starting with badfinger and obviously badfinger uh was working with george harrison but george harrison had to go organize the concert for bangladesh um and you had to come in and finish your parts what was that like George was actually the second producer. First producer was Jeff Emmerich. Beatles. Jeff. He had done a whole album, whole album with Badfinger, and they submitted it. And what I heard, I can't fully confirm this with firsthand knowledge, but what I heard was that the American label, Apple in America, was not happy with the record. What their reasons were, I don't know. But uh, that's when George took over, and he started essentially re-recording the album, uh, making a different album, essentially. He didn't take anything from the first record, started all over with a different album. As you mentioned, he got called away to work on the concert for Bangladesh, and that's when they had to find another producer. The band must have been pulling their hair out at this point. I had a reputation for essentially, you know, for no nonsense, for getting it done. Also, because I was a songwriter, I was not just a producer. I was a songwriter and an instrumentalist and stuff, as George was. You know, I could add insight into material and, and stuff like that and maybe hear it in a different way. So what I did was I took the four songs, maybe. I can't remember whether it was four or five songs that George had done. There was the whole Jeff Emmerich album. And... Um, we had to figure out how to, you know, whether we were going to try to record yet another album, like they had a limited material, or whether we would, you know, they had some new material that they had been working on. And so we went into the studio and I said, okay, let's just get your new material out of the way and we'll start fresh. You know, we won't try and imitate anything you've done before. We'll start fresh. And I think the first thing we did was Baby Blue. And we did a few more tunes. We think we did maybe four, three or four more tunes. And then uh, went back to the other recordings and pulled out what we thought could work. Uh, we pulled out um, day after day from the session that George Harrison had done. Uh, 
but the sound was all wrong. The sound was, the sound sounded like Bangladesh. You know, it was, George was doing that Spectorian thing where you have like three acoustic guitar players, you know, the drums are, you know, wall of sound. Everything is like lots and lots of reverb, things like that. And I thought, now that's George's sound now. George should just do that sound. So we re-recorded the drums because the drums had all this wash printed on them. Uh, re-recorded a few other things to get all of that ambient stuff out of the way and push the sound of the band further up. And then the Jeff Emmerich stuff was actually a little easier to work with. Some of it actually, you know, they had one or two songs we didn't have to do much at all with. And then a couple of songs that needed a few tweaks. And then I took it back to Bearsville and mixed it all down and attempted as best possible to make it seem as if it was all one series of sessions as opposed to three different stabs at getting a record done. And there were two big hits off of that record with Day After Day and Baby Blue, like you mentioned. It's amazing that these songs just stand the test of time. I'm sure that, you know, when the series finale of Breaking Bad used Baby Blue, mm-hmm. you know, it was a whole new generation and recharted the song 40 years later. I know. Well, that was just, it was the same thing with Don't Stop Believing, you know, uh, at the end of The Sopranos. The Sopranos, right? Yeah. And it's funny. It's like I was not like a Breaking Bad addict, so I hadn't been watching the show. So I didn't know it when it happened. And, of course, they keep these things like top secret until the show actually airs. They don't want anyone to know what the final song is going to be of the series. So uh, nobody knew until it actually aired. And I didn't find out until the next day. And I thought, oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> and as, of course, my manager started checking the royalties. <laughs> yeah, that works. We'll yeah. take it. Then let's move on to Grand Funk. Uh, We're an American band. You produced the title track, went to number one. Was that your first number one record? Uh, possibly. I didn't, I'm not sure that I kept track of that. You actually ended up producing two number ones with them, ironically, with a cover of Carol King's Locomotion on the next album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a very interesting experience in that the band was not chasing success in a traditional sense. They already had a huge audience, but there was something not right in the whole formula for them. You know, they were not satisfied with the way that they were estimated by um, music critics and such. And with some justification, they they were a jam band. You know, their re- their albums would can- contain like five songs on them or something like that, you know. And they would just like, they would have, some, you know, a, a little bit of gratuitous song and then a lot of jamming. And truth be told, you know, they were not cream. You know, they <laughs> were good players, but they weren't, you know, they were not cream. So they couldn't jam like that and make any sort of a dent in the in the reputation of anyone else so they required a whole rethink and part of the part of their issue was that their manager terry knight was a great he was great in terms of promoting the band he got him the biggest billboard that had ever been created on in times square 
you know, that was like an entire block long. And it just made people hate the band even more. <laughs> <laughs> but he also insisted on producing their records, and he was not a good producer. Their records didn't sound good. They didn't sound good, and also he didn't exert any sort of creative influence, you know, to make the stuff uh, radio-ready in a way. And they could get on FM radio, but they never, they never cracked AM radio. And so what happened is they decided, okay, we're going to re- think everything they got new management and okay who's gonna now produce the next record and i got uh asked to be involved and i thought wow this is an interesting challenge because i didn't know musically anything more about their band than anybody else did but i went to meet them and discovered that they're you know given the right thing given some good material to play they were actually a really good rock band and they were always really well prepared well rehearsed and realized, I think, they came to the realization that they had to come up with songs. You know, that it couldn't just be an excuse to jam. We went to Criterion Studios. Miami. Mm-hmm. First day, we recorded American Band. The very first, first day. You knew that was the single. Second day, we did a little bit of polishing, and I mixed it, and we went immediately into the mastering lab that they had in Criterion Studios and cut the master for the single. I'm not even sure we had a B-side yet. because you just sent it, you know, when you send out a promotional single, you send out the A side, nobody cares about the B side. And in those days you could chart based on pre-orders. In other words, you didn't have to chart based on sales. If the retail ordered enough, they charted the record. And so second day of the sessions, we do the master and we ship it off to be pressed. And it takes them a couple days to get the radio versions pressed and out to radio. And as soon as radio plays it, that's a trigger for everyone to order it because now they know the single is out. A week later, one week after we master the single, it charts in the top 20. Gee whiz. We're still making the record. <laughs> we don't even know what the B side of the single is yet. Amazing. And the record has already charted in the top 20. And before we're, you know, and we're mixing the album and the thing is in the top 10. And of course, you know, a week or two after that, it's number one. Amazing. So I've never experienced anything like that. Certainly not since. And I don't think that the, well, actually, the industry is more conditioned to do something like that now than it ever was. Because yeah, you can record something tonight and release it tonight, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean it's good. But let's let's touch on a couple of uh, other productions of yours that have become seminal productions. Talk about producing the first New York Dolls album. I was living on the Lower East Side in New York, probably about just like a five or ten minute walk from Max's Kansas City, which was at that point the center of the universe. All of these New York bands are coming in and out of Max's Kansas City between their mostly self-promoted gigs. You know, they would find an empty gallery or something and invite a bunch of people and put a hat out. 
But over time, it became apparent you know, that the New York Dolls were kind of rising to the top. People were paying a lot more attention to them. And I, was, I had bought a place in upstate New York and knew that I was leaving New York City. I would not permanently, of course, I would keep a place in the city because I had to work there, but I was no longer going to spend my regular days in New York City. And I thought I should pick one of these bands and do a record with them as kind of a little farewell to New York because it wasn't called punk rock then. It was called the New York scene, Wayne County and, uh, and uh, to some degree, uh, the Ramones, you know, bands like that. I'm not sure if I approached them or they approached me or whether I had Albert Grossman arrangement or some range it or something. But eventually, you know, we hooked up, decided that I would do the record. And uh, my track record was very persuasive at that point. And so we went through the, you know, essentially the circus of making their record. It was really just cat herding. Most, most of the record was cat herding. Were they good players? The musical, the musical ethos was that you were supposed to not be sophisticated about the music. So, yeah, we went in the studio and there were so many groupies and so many rock journalists just constantly in and out of the studio that it was more like, you know, organizing some kind of, you know, flash mob event or something. <laughs> And then we got to the end of the record and I learned a valuable lesson at the end of the record when it was time to mix it. Don't allow the band in the room while you're putting the mix together, <laughs> especially a new band, because each guy in the band, he only hears himself. <laughs> you know, the drummer only hears the drums and they always seem too low to him. <laughs> and the bass player only hears the bass and always seems too low, <laughs> you know. And so I had them in the room and I'm doing mixes. And the next thing you know, every fader is pinned at the top of the board. <laughs> and we got to start all over again, you know. <laughs> Amazing. And then at the end of that, you know, they would get they would have a gig in Long Island and be in such a hurry that they would just, you know, like skedaddle before the mixing was done. In my estimation, you know, it somewhat contributed. You know, of course, I'm making the sounds and the way it all kind of leveled out was some combination of what I thought it should be and some combination of their collective insistence on hearing themselves alone. <laughs> and, but, you know, it came to the most important phase of all in the record, and they just nickeled and dimed their way through it for some <laughs> weird reason. They had a mastering facility in, in the record plant, but it was an old-fashioned lathe. It was not what they would call, a, I can't remember the name, whether it was progressive or something like that, you know. Old-fashioned lathe, you set the width of the of the groove, and then every groove is that wide, and, it, and that's what happens. A modern lathe, a thing that makes a makes a vinyl record, a modern lathe essentially would have a look-ahead feature and be able to determine, you know, how wide the groove should be to be able to fit the sound. If it's quiet, you can make a narrower groove. If it's loud, you make a wider groove. And that way you could fit more sound and better quality sound on the record. In other words, the record overall would be louder because you weren't 
you know, limiting it to the loudest parts. You know, you could gain some room every time it got quiet. Um, but they insisted it on, on mastering it now in this old lathe, you know, and essentially made the record kind of not as, uh, not as hot as it could have been. So probably, you know, anything that was mastered later than the original sounds a lot better. So the, re the, re the remasters of that first album sound are, are more to your sonic satisfaction then? Probably, yes. <laughs> Let, let's move on to uh, Bad Out of Hell, one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Meatloaf and Jim Steinman couldn't get a record deal. And you ended up having Bearsville front the studio time and basically made a record independently. Yeah, well, when I first agreed to do Meatloaf, he had a record deal with a subsidiary of RCA, ironically called Utopia Records. Huh. But we determined early on that the record had to be live. We had, were going to do as much as possible live in the studio. And uh, we got the band together, which was a combination of the E Street Band and Utopia, essentially. And we rehearsed for like 10 days. Day before we're supposed to go into the studio, Meatloaf comes to me and says, I don't think my label understands me. I went off my label. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we're supposed to start a record tomorrow, but I'm not your manager. I can't tell you what to do. But keep in mind, we're supposed to start a record tomorrow, and they were going to pay for it. <laughs> not good so timing. So called the label and said I went off, and they said, fine. <laughs> you know, no problem. So I guess they hadn't given them much money or anything, so... Here I am stuck with the, you know, the band and we're all rehearsed and we're ready to go into the studio. The time is booked. And so I went to Bearsville, I went to Albert or whoever and said, uh, if you underwrite the cost of making this record and you can charge it to me and when the record's done, you'll get the right of first refusal. So we finished the record and Bearsville turned it down and Warner Brothers, who distributed Bearsville, turned it down. <laughs> Kids. <laughs> and uh, and so they were on the street shopping the record. It took them six months to find this little la label called Cleveland International distributed by Epic and a guy named Steve Popovich, who was a real, true, old-fashioned record guy. He only had one other act that was uh, Ian Hunter on his label. Mott the Hoople originally, but... Yep. And I knew Ian. You know, I was good friends with Ian. So I thought, you know, well, it's, he's put his money behind Ian, I feel good about this. And he put it out and he put out the first single and nothing happened. And he put out the second single and nothing happened. But by the time the third single came out, a lot had happened. <laughs> MTV came on the air and there weren't a whole lot of videos to play. VJs are just like DJs. They're looking for the longest thing to play so they can go up to the roof and get high. So <laughs> they were playing Paradise by the Dashboard Light, like once an hour. In addition to that, Meatloaf has been touring relentlessly, just like every place that he can possibly tour. So people have gotten at least some taste of, of Meatloaf, you know, before they're getting bombarded on MTV by him. That, I think, is what essentially sustained him to the point that, you know, Paradise by the Dashboard Light started to break. And then they went back and released the previous two singles, right, right. and those all went went large. And the rest is a very complicated history. Come on, 
I mean, what's amazing is that this record that you ultimately had agreed to make on spec because there was no label paying for it. Uh, talk about your first royalty check that you got from Bad Out of Hell. Well, I remember when we went into uh, Meatloaf's manager's office because we had to settle up. And I believe Albert Grossman was there with me. He might have had previous words, but I think he wanted to see my face when they cut me my first check, which was $700,000 and change. <laughs> Not bad. $750,000 or something like that. This is like maybe almost two years later, <laughs> two years since we started recording the record. I said, wow, that's cool. And then it went to the bank and probably got spent on, <laughs> I think it got spent on student, on video studio equipment. After that, I right. built a video studio. Utopia. Right? I spent all that money buying uh, video equipment. And that out of hell. And years and years later, here, a little anecdote. Go ahead. Years and years later, I found this piece of property in Kauai, which I'm currently living on. And wanted to buy it, but uh, the guy who had it would would not accept anything but cash. He would accept no paper for it. And it was like $800,000 he wanted for the piece of property. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to afford that. And then at one point, I had given it up. Then I got approached by uh, Meatloaf or Meatloaf's management or something like that. Somebody had uh, talked about how how many copies a bat out of hell had had sold. And it was many more copies than apparently had been accounted for by the label in terms of royalty checks. And so Meatloaf and his management and Jim Steinman decided that they were going to have the label audited and said, Oh, do you want in on this? You know, in other words, do you want to, do you want to start paying lawyers, you know, to help get money out? And I said, no, I don't think I want to do that. I said, would you like to buy all my points? from Bad Out of Hell. Because of what I had done, I was making more royalties than Meatloaf and Steinman combined on huh. Bad Out of Hell. Because it was not only the fact that I was the producer, that I had bankrolled the whole thing as well. You know, ultimately, I had bankrolled it. So I demurred. I said, you know, I'm not interested in hiring a lawyer. Would you like to buy my points back from me? And they said, no, I don't think... We I said, a million bucks, buy my points back from me. You know? They said, no, I don't think so. So uh, Columbia was now Sony. So I went to Sony and said, would you like to buy these royalty, these points back from me? And you can then stop paying me royalties. million bucks. And they said, yes. And that's why I'm living here now. You, now that this record just has sold and sold and sold over 40 million copies, do you regret doing that? No, not at all. Absolutely no. Look at this beautiful house. Look at where I'm living, damn it. <laughs> I'm in freaking Hawaii. There you go. <laughs> We're running a little tight on time, but okay. we definitely canvassed our Warner staff for questions, and so many of them came in about XTC skylarking. So please tell us that experience with XTC. Well, as previously mentioned, I often get called in as a kind of a troubleshooter on projects that have special challenges. And I was a big XTC fan from the beginning. I knew most all of their releases. And I also knew what was going on with the band in terms of, you know, how the records were being made. 
And I was, you know, firsthand aware of the effect that the records were having. Now, that's not, uh, that's not XTC. That is uh, not. There you go. There you go. <laughs> ah, you know, and I just realized last night that Dear God was featured in the first version of It. Wow. I didn't know that. see on TV last night. Wow. You know, Stephen King's horror thing with the clown. So anyway, they, I was approached by the A&R guy. And Andy had been doing, well, he hadn't been doing the production officially, but he had been doing it de facto. And essentially what was happening was the band, Andy at a certain point got stage fright. And so the band stopped performing live. So their only musical life was in the studio. And what was happening is they were spending longer and longer in the studio making the records because as soon as they were done, the fun was over. They would just go home and then, and, and be alone, you know, something like that. So they tended to drag the productions out as long as possible. And Andy being something of a perfectionist, uh, anal retentive in a sense, he would, you know, even though they would have a producer, they would come in and they would mix a song and make, take a day and mix a song and he would go home listen to it, and he would hear like a little space that didn't have something in it. But they go back the next day and mix the song again and eventually fill up every sonic space. You know, every all the air is gone, you know, because Andy would lose his objectivity, get bored with it, listening to it over and over and over. You know, the more familiar parts fade in the background, and the, uh, he's looking for something interesting to go on, so he keeps adding stuff. And not only that, the sound of the records were like, you know, the the extremes of the audio spectrum, you know, highs, the highest highs and the lowest lows and that sort of thing. And when you produce records, there's a thing that you need to understand. It's called psychoacoustics, which is the effect that sound is actually having on you, regardless of the content of the sound. If you feed people a whole lot of high frequencies all the time, it fatigues them. You know, it makes you tired. Also, if you have a song and you mix the voice just at the level where it can be heard, people have to strain to listen to it. You know, they have to, you know, they have to kind of work harder to hear it. And that's why, like, by the time I would get to the end of Steel Wheels or something, I would be exhausted. I'd want to listen to the record again, but I was too exhausted to listen to it because of the psychoacoustic aspects of it, the voice being too much, you know, equal to everything else and the highs being so high and frizzy all the time. And so I had to address those issues. You know, I had to address, okay, we need to put more air back into the records. But what we need to do most of all is stop Andy from taking over the process because that's going to, you know, that's going to result in the same thing. So when I first met with the band, I said, well, here's what's going to happen. I am not leaving this project like all your other... <laughs> Like all your other producers, you know, who either get worn out or have to go do another thing that they've committed to. I'm going to finish this record. You're not going to drive me off it. And essentially, by the end of the record, I had driven Andy off of it. And I, you know, I did something that hadn't been done in like, you know, many, many years, which was I mixed the record completely without the band. And in a sense, you know, they improved the first three songs and then they went back to England. And essentially, without their approval, mastered it, sent it, sent them the record. And then before the record was even out, Andy was 
trashing it from anybody who would listen. He says, the worst record we ever made. You know, it's just horrible. He was equating his experience, you know, with the actual quality of the record. And so everyone's expecting a really horrible record. Anyway, they sent me what was supposed to be the final running order for the record. And they actually went ahead and mastered it and released it that way. And Dear God wasn't on it. And for the first time ever, before or since, I called up the A&R guy at the label. And I said, this is a mistake. They're making a mistake. To you take knew. that off, to put on a stupid Another Satellite song, it's a dumb idea, and you should not do that. But they did it anyway. And then they released Grass as the first single. It's a good song. Yeah, good song. <laughs> nice song. Uh, one of Colin's songs, which also drew, drove Andy crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're releasing a single, and Andy didn't write it. <laughs> but they put Dear God, which they had taken off the album, on the B-side. And radio said, yeah, Grass is a nice song, but we're going to play Dear God, especially yeah. Radio, yeah, and there was also, uh, I think a Depeche Mode song that had something about God, blasphemous rumors, right? Yeah, and they would play yeah. them back to back, huh? Yeah, it's the Bob bashing section, <laughs> yes. radio would play them back to back, you know, and so, so they did, so it took off and it became, you know, the, the hit that everybody remembers it was, and then they had to go back and remaster the record again, put Dear God back on. Dear God, don't know if you know this, but your name is on all the quotes in this book. There's crazy humans wrote it, you should take a look. And all the people that you meet in your image still believe in a joke is true. Well, I know it ain't so do you, God. What's amazing is that as contentious, as famously contentious as those sessions were, Andy has since said, and I quote, Todd Rundgren squeezed the XTC clay into its most complete connected cyclical record ever. Not an easy album to make for various ego reasons, but time has humbled me into admitting that Todd conjured up some of the most magical production and arranging conceivable, a summer's day Cooked into one cake. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> I really have nothing personal against Andy because I never deal with him or anything like that. You know, I don't think I, you know, I have ever revealed something that those that anyone inside didn't already know. So it's just disappointing that, the, you know, the band could not leverage that into something that, you know, still exists would still exist today. Right. Uh, as far as I know, there will never be another XTC record. Yet Skylarking exists so many decades later as one of the greatest mm -hmm. records of the 20th century. The uh, Before we split, Todd, I had a nice conversation with your manager, Eric, yesterday, and we were talking about how many groundbreaking firsts you've had in your career. The first interactive TV concert, the first music video to utilize state-of-the-art compositing of live action, the first commercially available music downloads, obviously. Was it Patronet? Patronet, yeah. Patronet, the, the, before Napster, before iTunes, before anything, the first uh, world's first direct artist subscription service. And here you are, you know, over 50 years into your career, you're about to create another first with touring. You want to talk a little bit about that? You know, I do tour a lot, so I confront the realities of touring. 
And in recent years, it's gotten, you know, sometimes to be a, an unbearable ordeal getting from one place to another. Uh, if you depend on flying, the airline system before before COVID was already starting to collapse. Like you could not book a flight somewhere and depend on it taking off at the time you booked it for. So if your touring relied on you flying places, you know, it's just like it got, you know, it got ridiculous after a while. I was, you know, some of the tortures that I had to go through to get to a gig made me want to never tour again in some ways. But I also came to realize that this is not something that's transient. This is progressive. You know, a lot of these flight delays and things, that's because of the changes in the climate. You know, I, we, I don't know how many hurricanes it had in the Gulf, but how many times are they going to have to close down all the airports along the Gulf? You know, how many times are they going to have to close down all the airports along the East Coast because of these ever more frequently recurring weather events? So, and, and driving to places, you're not assured to get anywhere because you're driving. Let's imagine you had, let's imagine you were in Los Angeles and you had a gig in Seattle. Try and drive that through like how many forest fires, you know, <laughs> to get there. Try and drive through a flood. So the whole idea that you could book a tour and expect to show up all of these venues using conventional means is something of a fallacy. And I thought, we have to figure out another way to do this. It may not be the only way that you do things, but you have to have a backup plan. And this was before the pandemic. I always thought you have to come up with a solution for the band, for the act, not being able to get to the venue. <laughs> now we got a process where the audience can't get to the venue. And I hadn't factored that in, but, you know, it's in some ways the same problem. I'm going to do, a, I'm going to realize my idea for a virtual tour. And that means we will encamp in one location and we will set up the show that we would have dragged around all over the place. But instead of tearing it down every night and putting it up uh, the next night, it's just like a regular tour in that the show that you see will be the show for your city and won't be the same show that somebody in the last city saw or that someone in the next city will see. But we are still planning on doing a live on the road tour in 2021. Todd, this was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and everybody. On behalf of everybody at the Warner Music Group, I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks again to Todd Rundgren for joining us this week. Todd's resume is so loaded with achievements that there was no way to touch on everything, but he was very generous with his time, for which we thank him very much. Todd has almost 30 tour dates scheduled later this year. A complete list of these upcoming shows can be seen at todd-rundgren.com. To dive even deeper into Todd's world, check out his unique autobiography, The Individualist, Digressions, Dreams, and Dissertations. Thanks a lot for tuning in. 
We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on.